what I want to do is to talk to you about this book that I've uh, written. It was published a few months ago. Uh, it's been about 33 years in the making. It's sort of been a project in the back of my mind for a very long time. But what I want to do is introduce you to a diary kept by a remarkable person who worked in an extremely difficult place uh, during a very remote period of time. The diary its author, his mission, and his time are all very remote to us in the 21st century. So you'll have to engage, <coughs> excuse me, you'll have to engage your imagination uh, to appreciate all four, the diary, the person, the place, and the period. And I hope you'll come to share uh, some of my fascination with this manuscript journal and with the mid-Victorian German Jew, Joseph Oppenheimer, who kept the journal. The book which I've written is based on a single document, a small uh, diary, about three inches wide, five inches long, which was kept by a lay evangelist who worked in an area of London which was known as the worst slum of the mid-Victorian period. He kept it as he went door to door as an evangelist working for the London City Mission, which was a large, and still is today, very large uh, urban mission. Uh, seeking to talk to the desperately poor uh, and read portions of scripture to them and talk to the Christian faith. Although hundreds, probably thousands of such journals were uh, kept in the 19th century by such workers. The Home City Mission, even in the 1850s, had roughly 350 people working like this. There were other missions as well that we'll talk about. It's kind of like similar workers laboring in uh, the uh, poorest areas of, of uh, urban cities in uh, Britain. But uh, this journal is important not only for religious historians such as myself, but also for social historians, cultural historians, people interested in the Victorian city, uh, the Victorian slums, uh, people interested in the attitudes of people who often don't have a voice in most history texts. And it's important because it provides us with a first-hand account of what life was like in what was regarded as one of London's worst slums. This is uh, a very famous picture written, uh, sorry, uh, drawn by Gustave Couture. Couture was a French uh, engraver who moved to Britain and uh, became very famous for his scenes of London. This is his work called Dudley Street. Uh, <coughs> this is actually the street that Oppenheimer worked on. He worked on this street for about eight years as an evangelist. So you can you can see here um, the uh, the actual sort of place that uh, he worked in. Now, I, I when I gave this lecture at Regent in the summer, I had a, a little pointing device that would enlarge uh, different things. Um, here, there's a sign. You can't, but if you actually enlarge it, you'll see that the writing is Hebrew. And uh, there were four or five Jewish families on the street uh, that he records in his diary having visited. It's uh, quite interesting. Here you see uh, these. Um, this is really a, a, a place in the city where the poorest of the poor came to sell their used goods, uh, things that uh, pawnbrokers would not take because they were too cheap. Uh, they worked. Uh, many people worked in these underground cellars here, you can see. And what they did was they translated shoes. Now, 
one of the colorful descriptions of this, of this period is talking about the translators here. And people think that they're talking about people actually translating languages. Well, no, they're, they're taking worn-out shoes and making them barely uh, sellable. And then you can see the shoes down here uh, on sale. This, uh, the other thing that uh, was sold here very often was used clothing. So this street in particular was known as uh, one of the uh, places that uh, people came to sell or dolly is the term, the dolly shops, where the, uh, the dolly was actually a, a symbol, a place that was a little doll and represented this, uh, was a shop kept by somebody who was selling clothes. But you can see this uh, is populated by children, small children, the only place they have plays out on the street, but at the same time you have a handsome cab charging down the same street, uh, about to run over these children if they don't get it out of the way. Uh, again, the poverty here is and, uh, really quite unspeakable. Um, you can see various men here just standing, uh, watching the scene. Uh, I'll be bring, coming back to this photo a number of times during this lecture just to give you an impression of what this is like. And this is the actual uh, journal itself. Uh, so uh, this is on this very small uh, book. It's about 140 pages long and it details his worked in the slum from September 1861 until about April 1862, interrupted by times when he didn't keep the journal because he was off sick. Uh, so <clears throat> let me just begin by talking about uh, four things. My interest in the journal, who I've written this book for, uh, two other similar works, and then I'm going to talk about the controlling motif. So first, uh, why did, or how did I become interested in this topic? Well, I did my doctorate uh, on the evangelization of London in the mid-19th century, trying to figure out how did Christians respond to the new frontier that was emerging, which was the urban city. People could not, by the 1830s, believe that there could be a city of a million people. There was a book published in the early 1830s, 30s, uh, titled The Million People City. People were aghast that such concentration of humanity could occur. It had occurred at other times in history that they weren't aware of. But during this time, uh, Christians began to strategize uh, as to how to deal with the modern city, with its congestion, its poverty, its overcrowding, and the alienation of many poor people from the Christian faith as they moved into the city. Much of my book uh, which was published a long time ago, entitled In, uh, entitled, um, in Darkest, no, uh, Light in Their Darkness, is a, actually a phrase from the prayer book, Light in Their Darkness, O Lord, that was the title of the book, which focused on what the, how the, uh, these Christians responded. When I uh, presented my book for publication, one of the reviewers of the draft manuscript made the suggestion that I consider looking at this journal, which I didn't know existed, which was held by a church in London. And after looking at it, it became the basis for a chapter in which I dealt with the diary in that book. Uh, the journal is fascinating and provides us with this unique window on life in the Victorian slum. And the writer, Joseph Oppenheimer, is equally fascinating. One of my research assistants who worked with me checking over the transcription of the journal said to me that after working on it for a while, 
So the longer time, the longer he spent time with the journal, the more he became fascinated with this man. And if you spend time with Oppenheimer and reading the journal as he goes about his daily work, he eventually begins to haunt your imagination as you accompany him in his daily encounters with the desperate poor. Others are fascinated with the area that he worked in and value it for the important insights that Oppenheimer provides into the social life of this area. I met a secular historian, David Green, who is professor of geography at the University of London. And he has long been intrigued with this area of London, the slums, and has become an expert on them. And expressed to me his eagerness to have a full transcription of the diary published so that undergraduates can study it on their own and analyze it in their research because it provides this first behind account of the slum by a thoughtful observer. And it was Professor Green who also suggested to me that the BBC might want to do an hour-long program on Oppenheimer and his work. It's interesting, I had the same response from Baylor University Press when I talked to them about publishing. The woman who talked to me said, oh, a PBS should really do an hour-long series on this. Uh, I thought, well, that's interesting to get the same re reaction from uh, two very different people. Uh, who then is my intended audience? Authors always have to ask themselves this important question. Who am I writing for? Well, my conscious audience has been the general reader, but with an eye to students of Victorian cities and popular religion, to help them understand how religion was expressed and experienced on the ground. John Walsh, the respected historian at Oxford, once commented to me that historians of Victorian religion have generally been far more interested in what Edward Bouverie Pusey, the leader of the high church movement, might have said to John Henry Newman, the most famous convert to Rome, as they walked across the, the quadrangle at Oriel College in Oxford. Far more interested in that than what ordinary people actually believed in how they experienced religion at the very same time. So this book tries to bring to life how religion was expressed and experienced by the great unwashed, those people who rarely ever make it into history books. This is a history from below, rather than a history of the elites. In thinking about who my intended audience is, I go back my mind to a conversation I had about 10 years ago in Jerusalem. Uh, the person I was talking with was a secular historian, a professor of literature at Ben-Gurion University. But he'd done his doctorate at Oxford, and uh, he actually had studied under Sarah Williams, my colleague at Regent. Uh, she had put me in touch with him. Uh, we get, met together for coffee. I was actually researching for a book on Christian Zionism at that point. We had an interesting conversation about that. But then he said something to me that <clears throat> probably the most striking thing I've ever been said ever been said to me with my own research. He said, "You know, uh, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, I, you know, and I'm Jewish, a secular Jew, I decided to do a concentration, what is called a, a paper." So he read <coughs> for a paper, the most popular paper for Oxford undergraduates <coughs> is the 19th century paper on church and state, the relationship between the British government <coughs> and the church. And he said, something I didn't know, he said, the reading list for that concentration included your book, in, uh, Light in Their Darkness. And he said, I read that, and he said, for the first time I actually began to understand what Christianity was actually about. I, as a secular Jew, had known about Christianity, but it was only reading your book and hearing about the attempts to evangelize people that I came to understand what Christianity was about. Uh, well, 
you certainly weren't my intended audience, but I'm really glad you read it. And the same thing with this book. I'm hoping that uh, it will be adopted by secular historians for reading by undergraduates, such as uh, Professor Green, this geographer at the University of London, who read the diary, uh, but wants to be, have it uh, available, because it, it really does give you a snapshot of what evangelicals believed and uh, what they were trying to do. So too with this book, my hope is that it will be read by undergraduates and others interested in understanding the efforts of the hundreds of men and women who worked in the 19th century trying to explain and recommend the Christian faith to the poorest of the poor. So, um, let me say something here about um, the manuscript itself. The journal itself back here to this picture of the books. Here we are. The journal itself is a small booklet about three inches wide and five inches long, about the size of a book that would fit into a gentleman's coat pocket. It was issued by the London City Mission to its workers and was meant as a way of keeping the, uh, a way of the report of the reporting of by the worker to his clerical supervisor what he was doing, what was he observing, what he uh, how his work was proceeding. His task was for six days a week, 50 weeks a year, to go from door to door in a very small area of London and talk to the same people week in, week out, about the Christian gospel and read scriptures to them. In the journal, the worker was to record the names of each person whom he met, uh, to describe what he saw, what he heard, even what he smelled. People often ask how the diary ended up in the hands of the church where it was, where it was held, or it is still held, St. Giles in the Field in London, which was the church, the Anglican church that Oppenheimer attended, and it was a curate of that church who <coughs> supervised his work with the London City Mission. <coughs> when I first visited the church in around 1983 or 1984, the custodian, the verger, told me that a couple of years earlier, probably in the late 60s, early 1970s, couple had come in from off the street and said that they had had this diary in their family for many years, didn't know what to do with it, and they thought it should be returned to the church that's mentioned in it. Surprisingly, the couple said they were from Vancouver, British Columbia. <coughs> now, the name Oppenheimer, Vancouver, Oppenheimer Park, first mayor of Vancouver, Vancouver David Oppenheimer, in 1885, was from southern Germany, in fact, from the same area of Germany that my Oppenheimer was from. And so I began to try to look for a connection between my Oppenheimer and the five Oppenheimer brothers who ran a very successful uh, business here in Vancouver, uh, basically a hardware business, but they were the major provider of everything that the, C, uh, the, C, the CPR needed as it came through the Rockies. Well, lo and behold, there was another Joseph Oppenheimer in Portland, same name, Joseph Oppenheimer, who uh, worked with the Oppenheimer brothers in uh, Vancouver. He provided all of the goods needed for the CPRs that came through the Rockies from the east, and he brought all the supplies up the Columbia River to meet the, the needs of the CPR coming this way. So one way it was Joseph Oppenheimer providing, and the other way it was these other Oppenheimers in Vancouver. So I was convinced this must be the Oppenheimer. Somehow the, the Oppenheimer in uh, 
Cortland must be a cousin of the Oppenheimers from the same area, born about the same time, etc., etc. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> and the reason I discovered I was wrong is that I finally, after having had this diary for years, I realized at the very end of it, there's a name of another missionary, another city missionary, who took over this district, and it must have been his family, the Irish um, name, uh, that made its way to Vancouver. So I was, uh, I was disproved in my, my supposition. Uh, it would have been really fun to associate the two Oppenheimers, but, and they may well have been related, but uh, I, Oppenheimer himself became very ill at, right at the end of the diary. You can see his handwriting disintegrate, and he, went, he left the mission entirely. <clears throat> so who is this, this man, Joseph Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer was born in, 19, in 1833, the son of a Jewish shopkeeper near Frankfurt on Mainz in southwestern Germany. He apparently trained to become a rabbi, was able to read and write in Hebrew, German, and English. He emigrated to England at about the age of 20 and converted to Christianity shortly thereafter through the work of a Anglican society, the London Jews Society, as is often referred to which provided housing and employment for Jewish converts who were often ostracized <coughs> because of their uh, conversion to Christianity. He began to work <coughs> at the age of 24 for the London City Mission. He married in 1859, and together he and his wife had four daughters and one son. Descendants of the Oppenheimers can be found in England, Australia, and New Zealand. I've actually been in touch with one of his great-great-granddaughters. Um, and I've been looking desperately for a picture of this man. Uh, by the 1880s, middle-class families generally had family portraits done, uh, but I've not been able to come up with one. Uh, the family knows there, has, there was one in the past, but they don't know where it is. We know that during his time with the mission, his health broke down several times as he was sick uh, and on sick leave for months at a time. This wasn't at all unusual for the city missionaries. Several earlier workers in the area where Oppenheimer worked had died from diseases contracted in the slums, and in 1862 his health broke down completely, and he went to the country to recuperate, and therefore uh, he disappears from the city mission's records. However, from his obituary in 1890, he died at age 57, and his wife's will, which was probated in 1907, it appears that he did very well financially after leaving the mission. Uh, we know that his father was a shopkeeper in Germany, and Joseph, uh, needing a new career, uh, became a shopkeeper as well. In fact, he became a tobacconist and sold tobacco in a shop that he established across from Victoria, Victoria Station in London. Um, interestingly, the tobacco trade in the 19th century London was dominated by Jews. Uh, as even today, many businesses in large cities are dominated by specific ethnic groups. Uh, can you find an Irish taxi driver in Vancouver? <laughs> Not unless he speaks Punjabi. Uh, it's interesting talking to friends in New York City and said, oh yeah, the, the, in, if you go to a restaurant, the people who wash dishes are from one ethnic group, the people who serve tables from another, the people who make the food are from another. This is a very typical thing of, of ethnic groups of, Somebody starts off and something they were able to do at home, and then they provide the network for other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oppenheimer is probably not typical of London City Mission agents. He was a foreigner and a Jew 
and probably much better educated than most, fluent in three languages. And he had only recently acquired his knowledge of Christianity, which he worked so hard to share in this difficult context. Let me just say uh, something here about um, making sense of uh, his mission. Uh, there are two books in particular that have been helpful to me in, uh, in writing this. One is a fascinating book by Owen Chadwick, a leading uh, 20th century historian who taught at Cambridge for many years in modern history. He has a fascinating work, if you're a book, book reader, entitled A Victorian Miniature. What he does in this book is he takes two diaries. One diary is from an earnest evangelical minister in this small town in, in, uh, near Norfolk, uh, in eastern England. And it's his own uh, very personal account of life and ministry in this, in this parish uh, over a number of years. And then he takes the diary of the local lord of the manor, the man who was wealthy and had to be uh, dealt with, whether you liked it or not, because the lord of the manor usually, in these contexts, controlled the naming of the minister. This minister had been named before uh, the lord had uh, acquired his property. <clears throat> and so you hear uh, morning conversation, uh, or the morning feelings of the minister as he's preparing to preach, and then his experience of preaching that morning and having to say hard things to the, uh, to the uh, assembled uh, congregants, including the Lord of the Manor. And then you hear what the Lord of the Manor in his diary thought of that this morning and what, how the lunchtime conversation went around the Lord of the Manor's uh, table and what it was like when the, the minister actually came to, to dinner and how everybody had to be very polite and the, uh, the warfare was continued in a much more subtle way. Uh, absolutely fascinating book, but it's, it's, it's an excellent example of the use of this sort of diary literature. Uh, the other is a book recommended to me by George Marsden, a uh, leading American historian, um, who's often taught at Regent. And this one is uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's prize-winning, uh, it's a Pulitzer actually winning prize book, entitled A Midwife's Tale the life of Martha Ballard. Uh, Ulrich builds her deeply insightful work on the basis of a diary kept by a midwife in uh, rural Maine at the turn of the 19th century, so the 1790s through the early 1800s. For 27 years, Martha Ballard recorded her midwifery career, during which she delivered just under a 1,000 babies be exact 996 babies, which works out to about 37 babies a year, or three a month for 27 years. It makes for fascinating reading and opens up so much about rural life in America at the turn of the 19th century. So if you're a reader interested in the nitty gritty of life from below through diaries, these two gems are worthy of your consideration for your reading. Um, I felt that I needed a motif that would help me to organize the book. And the motif that I chose uh, is the motif of the sower. You know the um, passage from uh, the gospel that speaks of Jesus speaking of the sower being of sow a seed. So this became the controlling motif as I tried to organize uh, the whole book. So I begin with the sower's work, the sower and the sower's field. So uh, I talked about uh, 
what he was up to, the mission. Then I talk about the missionary, the sower, and then I talk about uh, the field, that is, this area of uh, London and Dudley Street. And then in the next section, I go on to the sower's uh, words, and I actually have a transcription of the full manuscript, so if somebody wants to just read the manuscript on the phone, they can, um, which is a great assignment for undergraduates, read the, the, all the entries over a certain period of time and come to your own conclusions. And then I, cha I, I continue with this uh, metaphor of the sower, but I, I switch the focus from the, the, the sower and the seed to the soil. And I have four chapters describing uh, four different uh, types of soil that he uh, was working with. So the Irish Catholic soil. Uh, the area that he worked with was about a third Irish. The Irish had flooded into England in the 1840s, given the Irish potato famine, where millions of people died of starvation in Ireland. So Liverpool, Manchester, and London, and uh, Scotland as well were flooded with these desperately poor people. If they came from London, this is where they ended up, starting off in, uh, often in St. Giles. And so he deals a lot with uh, Irish Catholics. Another chapter on the Jewish families, uh, five or six Jewish families, he establishes very good rapport with in his conversations. Another uh, chapter on the unfortunates, that is the prostitutes in the area, so a profile what the prostitute uh, was like, uh, the age they started the business, their response, their politics. You know that the average of a Victorian prostitute voted conservative and had learned to read in a Sunday school. Uh, it was really quite interesting. I thought, wow, this is something I, information I'd never known, never thought to know. Uh, but he has he has conversations, regular conversations with uh, with women working as prostitutes, and then a whole chapter on the stony ground, again, the motif from scripture. Uh, the people really resistant to his message. Not really much political opposition, um, but more. Uh, a certain degree of ethnic opposition from the, the Irish Catholics, and then the final uh, section is on the sower's harvest, so uh, looking at the uh, most uh, responsive, the good soil, in a sense, that he uh, he worked. So let me just walk you through some of this, this material here. Um, I was aided in uh, doing this uh, work by the fact that just a few months before, England had taken its uh, annual, its, uh, every 10 years, Britain had a census. So just, so just a few months before uh, the, the journal begins, uh, there was a recording of everybody who lived on every street, every place, and it gives the, their names, where they were born, their age, and their occupation. So I can take the names that he mentions of people in the diary, and I can say, okay, uh, for, for instance, here, um, this is the uh, Mary Colby, this is Monmouth uh, Court, uh, October 1861. Uh, second back, an old uh, woman named Colby said, you always come here and I talk, and I told you the last time I was not of your persuasion. I'm not one of your people. And I, those, I, and I never goes to, go to any of your people for nothing at all, and I don't want to be, be visited. 
I know all you can tell me, Father Kelly, bless his soul, is my, is my priest, etc., etc. From the census record, we know this woman's 57 years old, the wife of William Colopy. He was Irish born, she was actually born in England. Uh, three children lived with them Mary, uh, 28 years old, William, 22, and Richard, 15, all children born in London. This gives you a bit of an idea. Uh, this is uh, actually where, uh, a picture of where in Germany. So he's from near Frankfurt. Uh, Frankfurt on Main is here in this picture. He's from just outside of Frankfurt. This is the uh, place where uh, the London Jews Society had its headquarters. London Jews Society was very uh, well organized, very well financed. Uh, British evangelicals were convinced that the gospel is to be offered first to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Uh, the Palestine Place was the name of their headquarters in East London uh, that had a chapel, it had a sort of Bible school, it had um, workshops to help uh, people obtain work because they'd been uh, disowned by their families. Uh, all the apparatus of work of converting uh, British Jews uh, was here, and this is where uh, Oppenheimer himself uh, was in the early 1850s before he started working for the City Mission. This is uh, the church, St. Giles in the Fields. You can see it. This is a 19th century picture, but this is the uh, church today that you can visit. Uh, now, a little bit about um, the mission field. Thomas Beams in the Rookeries of London, 1852. In common parlance, St. Giles and Billingsgate are types. The one of the lowest conditions under which human life is possible, that is, St. Giles, where it can work, and the other of the lowest point to which the English language can descend. Gives you an idea of uh, his estimate of the very area. I wanted to show you exactly where he worked. Here you see, uh, this is London. Um, here is the London Eye, over here. Uh, the British Museum up here. And he, this is St. Giles Church right here. I'm going to show you this in much more luck. And then this area right here is the two-block stretch of Dudley Street. So just south of the British Museum, uh, what is this is the northern end of what is now uh, Shaftesbury Avenue in the Theatre District of London. What's the Coca-Cola thing about what? That's uh, the, the London Eye, the huge, it's like Ferris wheel. Like Nothing to do with Coca-Cola. Well, they, yeah, they own it. Totten Court Road is the nearest tube station to this. Uh, again, here's Covent uh, Garden, and here you can see, not very well, I'm afraid, this is what is Shaftesbury Avenue now, but this is where he worked, um, and you can see on the next map why this area is called the Seven Dials. What you have is seven streets coming together, and this sort of the radius like a, a clock, clock dial. Uh, <coughs> Dudley Street, the street that he worked on, is this area here. So this is the northwest side of this square here, which is known as Seven Dials. The Seven Dials was regarded as incredibly dangerous place to go to, to go to even during the day. Uh, if you read Victorian novels, this is the area of Jack the Ripper, 
that's the area wow. where if you want to visit the course of the pool you go. I read a, a novel a few weeks ago and they, this woman writes about the Seven Dials. So here is the same area today, Seven Dials here, Shaftesbury Avenue, which was the game. This is this area where uh, he worked. Again, one more picture here. Uh, seen. But I want to show you now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what I wanted to show you this. I'm going to show you a modern day picture of this street. This is uh, where uh, Gustave Doré would have stood as he sketched the picture that I showed you earlier. He was looking northeast along Dudley Street, and he titles his work Dudley Street. So he's standing right here, and so this is what he's seeing. This is what you see today. Uh, so the area has been um, torn, everything that was, that was existing there in the 1860s was torn down in the 1880s, and it's been rebuilt several times. So this is, you see Shaftesbury Avenue here, this is a Google uh, Maps. Uh, and off to the right here, there's a street coming in, uh, Earl Street, which was, it was called in the 19th century maps. And here is another picture from above, again, here looking more. This is the area, uh, very small area that he visited uh, as he worked. Here's another picture of the Seven Dials in uh, the 19th century. This is right at the center where there was a, a sundial at the center of the Seven Dials. We have a number of written descriptions of Dudley Street from the pens of social commentators. It was the place, as I've mentioned, where the poorest of the poor came to sell their worn-out clothing to people, even yet poorer than themselves. Many people worked in the shoe repair business, in the basements of the tenements along the street. And here's another sketch that catches some of the atmosphere of the poorer sections of London. London was remarkable in that very poor areas, as in Vancouver, coexisted with sections of great affluence only a few blocks away. But in the 19th century, uh, many middle and upper people of middle and upper classes lived in worlds completely apart, and there was little awareness often of a lot of the poor. Much of that was uh, dispelled by the work of London city missionaries and by novelists like uh, Charles Dickens. I'll mention Dickens a little later. One of the, uh, certainly by the middle of the, ninth, well, by the early 1840s, there's something called the Condition of England question, a major uh, issue of discussion about the state of England and how the poor were doing so badly. Uh, the solution very often was that of slum clearances. David Green, the professor of geography I mentioned, this is a, uh, his own sketching of the, the number of paupers. These are people who are uh, eligible for parish relief uh, in the 1840s. This area here, the very worst area, was basically uh, subjected to slum clearances. So the people who were there, you'll notice they've disappeared in this later, this in, the, in the 1850s. They've disappeared, but what has happened is they've simply moved elsewhere in the parish. So they, it isn't really solving the problem, it's actually making the, the problem worse for people. Making this situation worse was the operation of what are called the poor laws. Uh, Britain had a, uh, a series of laws 
which required a parish if people were absolutely desperate uh, to be cared for by the parish. But in order to be eligible for such relief, entrance into a workhouse where you're given work to do, uh, eligibility for that was dependent upon being able to prove that you had lived in the parish for two years. So if your hobble, even the hobble, your, under, your people paid actually to live in a crawl space under buildings, uh, if that building was demolished, you were, you really were forced to move somewhere else within the parish. Because if you moved out of the parish, then you were no longer eligible for charitable work if it was support or uh, basic, basic uh, social support from the, the parish. So these poor people were aware of that. And they, they very much uh, knew that it was in their best interest if they were forced to move. So what you did was simply relocate the poverty within a very uh, short distance of where you would be living. <clears throat> Let me show you, this is uh, an example of his uh, interactions with uh, this Irish, with the Irish here. An Irish family, extremely poor, no scriptures, occasionally attend St. Patrick's Cathedral. Their five children in number are not going to school at all, for they are all, all but naked. Two of them are running around the room with nothing about them but an old rags and the shape of a shirt. I wish we were all dead, says the mother. I don't care. We could not be worse off than we are now. I don't believe that there's a God at all. If there is, he don't care much about us. I know maybe we have not tried him. I don't think it would be any use. I wish he would send us a loaf of bread now. And then another, uh, these are instances of the poverty that he saw. Uh, another Lee, but no relation to the above. James Lee has four children ill. The poor little creatures are laying on the floor. There being no bed in the room. They seem to more in want of food than anything else. The father having no work, they're all but starving. Read the word and explained it and promised to recommend their case to the proper authorities. So there were uh, the other places he mentions that uh, he can uh, obtain uh, blankets, etc., for a very poor family or point them to the, the parish officials who can uh, address their case. In the, 19, in the 1830s, London became the new missionary frontier of, 18th, of 19th century England. Uh, the work, as I mentioned, is headed up by the London City Mission, who in the 1830s used government maps to uh, divide the whole of London up into very small sections. And each of those sections, starting with the poorest areas, it wants to appoint a missionary to work in that area, uh, doing this sort of evangelistic work. Um, this comprehensive plan is shown here in their journal, which their London City Mission magazine, which they circulated throughout Great Britain, they would actually have people color in specific areas where they wanted uh, financial support to send in new missionaries. And uh, this approach um, really is replacing a voluntary approach known as the District Visiting Societies. These were uh, societies began in the 1820s using lay people to visit the desperately poor. But by the 1830s, it was realized that this is very dangerous work and it requires a lot more time than the lay volunteers are able to give, and hence the use of paid workers. You'll see the explosion of this approach uh, between uh, beginning in, 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 um, this graph shows the 
a number of London City missionary workers in 1840. <coughs> there was a similar, strictly Anglican Evangelical Society called the Scripture Readers Association, which uh, had a fair number of workers, all over 100 by 1860. But it really is the uh, approach of London City Missionary, one City Mission, which is interdenominational and appeals to a very broad cross-section, works with Anglicans and nonconformists. Um, but by 1860, there are 370 London City Mission workers. There are about just over 100 uh, Scripture Reader Society uh, workers. And um, there's another society begun only in 1857 by a remarkable woman by the name of Ellen Ranyard, who had worked very closely with the Bible Society. She uh, had the idea that she would employ working class women to evangelize working class women. First, by getting working class women to commit to uh, putting aside a, a, it's going to be a half penny a, a week towards the purchase of a Bible, <clears throat> but also gathering these women in small self-help groups, teach them how to take care of their own families, how to cook uh, inexpensive meals that would be nourishing. And uh, within three years, this society comes from out, from out of nowhere, 1857, by 1860, it has about 130 workers, and it grows throughout the century. Uh, in 1867, Ellen Ranyard has another idea. <clears throat> These women have been so well received in the slums that she begins to train them as uh, nurses, Bible nurses they're called. They really are the background to what becomes preventative health care, the Victorian order of nurses. This is where the idea comes from, from Ellen Ranyard. Uh, by the late 1860s, she has many women working in London uh, with, as one historian put it, uh, treading, trudging along the streets of London with a New Testament one pocket and uh, Florence Nightingale's hints on nursing in the other, uh, and offering primary preventative health care to women, uh, very often staying up all night with a woman if she's sick, uh, but again, focused on the poorest of the poor. <coughs> Fascinating quote here from uh, yeah, Professor Young's Portrait of an Age, written way back in the 1860s, but it's an amazing quote. There been at work among us, the nonconformist preacher told his people, three great social agencies, the London City Mission, the novels of Mr. Dickens, and the cholera. <laughs> um, cholera solves a lot of social problems because the people who are no longer, they're no longer needy because they're all dead. Um, it's interesting here, though, that the, 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 the realization of London City Mission is hugely important. It's also very important for government uh, knowledge of the slums. Uh, the leading social comedy, Henry Mayhew, who writes a lot of the slums in the 1880s, and others get their knowledge of the slums by going through the slums with London City missionaries. Uh, their reports are talked about in the House of Commons by Lord Shaftesbury. And in fact, in Oppenheimer's journal, there's actually the case of a, a leading conservative member of parliament who accompanies him one day on his visits just to see. He's, he feels like this is the way in. This is a man who's known and understood and appreciated in the, uh, in the uh, slums. Another historian, Sheridan Gilly, speaks of the, social, the city mission. Indeed, it's difficult to exaggerate the city mission's social importance it was undoubtedly responsible more than any other body for the multiplication of evangelical <coughs> social agencies, 
of all kinds in the 1840s, especially in the ragged schools and the ragged school union, which was founded under the commission's auspices in 1844. Uh, the London City Missions Journal reports gave the Victorian wilderness public a wealth of information hitherto unavailable and new sorts of urban destination, and thereby aroused a new enthusiasm to suffer the poor while saving souls. <clears throat> Gilly mentions there the ragged schools. These were uh, schools begun by city mission workers in the poorest areas of London in the 1840s, <coughs> basically offering the children who were running wild in the streets of London. There were a lot of uh, orphans uh, who made their living uh, by scrounging uh, for food, by uh, crawling through the sewers to try to find anything of value that might have fallen in. Uh, here is one of the schools. Here you can see these children learning uh, the skills. They were taught to uh, read and write, but they were also taught vocational skills. Uh, the posters on the wall of the virtual read, Thou God seest me, and thou shalt not steal. Silent reminders to students that those concerned with their vocational education were equally, if not more, concerned with preserving Christian morality. This is from the one illustrated uh, London news in the early 1850s. Uh, this is the motif that I was talking about and how it works. But let me uh, just look <coughs> at a few of these groups. Firstly, the Irish Catholics. Uh, this is the, the uh, portion of the diary that I showed earlier. An old woman named Collier. Uh, you always come here, and I told you the last time I wasn't in your persuasion. I'm not one of your people. I never go to any of you people at all. Uh, I don't want to be visited. I know all you can tell me. Father Kelly, bless his soul, is my priest, and I knows him, and he knows me. He's a good soul as ever breathed, and I will never listen to nobody else. <laughs> yes, he told me it was Jesus, blessed be his name, and his blessed mother, and here, take me crucifix out of her pocket. He gave me that, and told me never to part with it, which I never shall, have, uh, have been permitted to speak of, of Jesus as the only mediator between God and men. I have a section actually in the, in the diary following up on Father Kelly, who was a fascinating person, had a very large uh, church uh, about four or five miles east of uh, up here and uh, represents a, a new form of uh, Catholicism, very much influenced by the uh, Romantic movement and uh, the reflowering or the flowering of uh, Catholicism on the continent. Very much opposed by many of the Catholic hierarchy who really were not very happy with the arrival of all these desperately poor Irish disrupting uh, state Catholic worship. Uh, so there's a, a certain degree of, of class uh, conflict going on here, even with Catholicism. Or another one, uh, a very bigoted Irish woman Catholic named Riley told me to go to the <laughs> devil, where he would knock my brains out if I did not leave his room at once. But after a few minutes, he got a little calmer, and amidst a great many interruptions, I was nevertheless permitted to flee from the wrath to come. Refuse the track. <laughs> or, agent rejected. Was refused admittance by a Roman Catholic Irishman who used very bad language and threatened to push me down the stairs if I was not off at once, etc. But still, I've been permitted to deliver my message to him while standing at the door. And then another conversation, but a, a more hopeful one. Uh, another Irish family, Roman Catholic, but they received my visit very kindly, and the husband of Cobbler asked me to sit down, found him pretty well versed in scripture. And when I spoke to him of the nature of sin and God's righteousness in saving the sinner through Jesus Christ, he said, 
I know that God is a holy God and he will punish sin. There is a hell, I believe there is. I have no doubt about it in my mind. Yes, we all deserve to go there. I know that you know it. Yes, I believe Christ has died for me. He is a sufficient Savior. I know he is the way to heaven. I trust in no other for salvation. I don't do as I ought, but I try to do my best, and the rest I leave to Christ. He alone can save me, and I pray that he will save me. That's the track I promise to call again. So, a much more positive response by at least uh, well, a few Catholics in the, in the neighborhood. Mm. Or um, a few examples of positive responses in my final uh, chapter on uh, the good soil. Uh, top back called upon old cook who said, Thank God I'm able to get out and go to church next Sunday if I'm spared and intend to, intend to attend the Lord's Supper. He is still a great supper, but when I alluded to it, he said, Oh, my dear sir, what would have come of me if God had not visited me with this affliction? I would have died like a fool, for I did not know Christ before I was afflicted. But now I thank God I can say I know the Bible deeper lives than a portion of the word not for the prayer. Or a blind woman uh, who he has ongoing conversations with called upon poor blind Miss Tyler, who was very glad to see me, read the word, and offered up a prayer. Miss Tyler is one of those who know in whom they have believed. Uh, it is very comforting for the missionary to have such bright jewels in the district full of sin and misery, where he can go for a short space of time to hear from the lips of one surrounded by all the evil influence what the Lord can and does do for those who receive Lord Jesus Christ and love him as your Savior. Uh, and this here is the uh, entry from the uh, census record related to Ms. Tyler's closest friend was 27-year-old Mary Day from Lincolnshire, who was also blind from birth. She was married to a 26-year-old James Day, who was employed as a gilder. They had two daughters, May and Elizabeth, ages three and one. The census form says that it was James Day who had been blind from birth, but this seems to be careful error. We meet Mary Day on October's next visit in January 1862. Called upon poor blind Ms. Tyler, who was very glad to see me read and explained the 23rd Psalm and offered up a prayer. The poor blind woman is one of the happiest Christians I've ever seen. And each time I visit her, I really feel that it does me good. Front room Mrs. Day, likewise a blind woman, is still in an indifferent state of mind, and through the influence of Miss Tyler, her friend, she has been induced to attend to the outward forms of religion, but is still as far as ever from the kingdom of heaven. His persistence and supremely influence Van Tyler began to change the world of change in Mary Day, from the 18th of uh, February. Uh, Top and back called again upon Mrs. Day and Aunt Tyler, both blind, read and explained the word to them and endeavored to impress upon Mrs. Mrs. Day the duty and privilege of prayer. Mrs. Tyler is a sincere and faithful Christian woman who, though blind, yet sees with the eye of faith him who has loved her and given himself for her. And then this final, uh, my final example. Uh, is again related to uh, this day and this battle. Visited only a few special cases today, was gladly received, and the poor people were very much pleased to see me again. Poor, poor blind Ann Tyler of 59 Dudley told me that she had prayed for me twice every day since she had heard I was ill, and was sent to church several times to inquire after my health. I read and explained to her and Mrs. Day, who was present in the 23rd Psalm, after which we knelt down in prayer to the heavenly throne of heavenly grace. 
with me. The image of the missionary with two blind women kneeling together in prayer is in such a hollow. It's hard to imagine when one contemplates Gustav's Dore uh, image of Dudley Street. And then, <coughs> this is my final example of the positive response. Found a young man very willing to listen to the message. He used to attend a Sunday school when he was a boy. He still got a Bible which was given to him as a prize for regular attendance. Has not been to a place of worship since last Christmas, 12 months. Uh, has not got tidy clothes now which are fit to go to, to go in. Knows God looks into the heart and not at the clothes. <coughs> reads his Bible occasionally. Had a long talk with the young man whose name is Tennant and found him very teachable. He seemed to be impressed when I read and explained the portion of the word. And when I left, he asked me to call again. So this is a, a, a fascinating window into a very remote time amongst desperately poor people. Uh, and yet the, the level of, uh, of his ability, of Oppenheimer's ability to reach these people is really quite remarkable. I've always wondered how in the world looking at that picture, going back to that picture of, uh, if this was your scene of your daily work, um, how would you have the strength and courage to get up, walk the four or five blocks to this uh, street and do the work that he's called to do uh, for day after day, week after week, month after month, for about eight years. Some of these city missionaries stayed in their position for 30, 40 years as lay evangelists. It's interesting, in the 1880s, when the uh, Salvation Army began, there was often strong resistance in the slums to the Salvation Army, because people said, you guys are interlopers, what are you doing coming onto this turf? This, this, this area belongs to the city missionary who's been working here faithfully. He's our pastor, he's our slum pastor. What are you, what are you guys doing here? Um, we already know what Christianity is about, because these guys have been telling us this for 40 or 50 years. Uh, so it's interesting that, that often the resistance to the Salvation Army is not so much, uh, in some cases, uh, opposition to what they're saying, but the idea that these people, or other Christians, have been working faithfully for decades amongst us, uh, the sort of person they return to uh, in times of need for help and this assurance. Uh, and I think in terms of how this uh, mission really shaped religious life and uh, cultural life in Britain in the, in the late 19th or 20th century is uh, hugely important for understanding of how religion works at a popular level in, uh, in this period. So, I've said enough.